my grandkids have wanted to write down all the wise sayings that I've that they've heard me say, but the problem is it's only like it's less than a page long, and they just ran out of. They couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another Melt in Your Mouth, Not in Your Hand episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim. He's Ken Hensley, and we come to you from the Coming Home Network. Come visit us at chnetwork.org, and especially come visit our online community, community.chnetwork.org. Ken, how are you? I'm good, and I'm glad to hear this is, at least this is not a Melt in Your Mind episode. It might be, either way. And uh, Good to see you. And just in case if anybody's mind is melted, because I'm in, I'm, I, this is an away game for me. I'm actually in Cincinnati uh, visiting some friends. Uh, some people may know that I do a morning show on EWTN called the Sunrise Morning Show with Anna Mitchell. This is her basement, and she does a bunch of YouTube stuff with Father Hezekiah Carnazzo of the Institute of Catholic Culture. So go see his Journey Home episode and go find out what they do. They got lots and lots and lots of free stuff there as well. So there's free advertising. Father Hezekiah, don't say I never did anything for you. Me, as usual, I'm in my office at home. This is where I work every day, right here. All right. It looks good. It really does. Okay. Um, but today, we are beginning to wind things down <clears throat> in our discussion of Christian authority. So uh, to set the stage for how we're going to begin to wrap things up over the next couple of episodes, uh, mm -hmm. where are we right now? Well, we're telling stories this is this is what we do. Um, let me back up to slightly and put this in context then. When you and I did our, our series on Sola Scriptura, which was 11 episodes some moons back, we shared the story of how we came to abandon the view that the Bible, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else is all that is necessary for faith and practice. We got that little sentence from Norman Geisler and Ralph McKenzie, a couple of Protestant scholars. Um, we shared the story of how we came to abandon this view, Bible-only Christianity. In short, you and I argued in that series that sola scriptura just isn't scriptural, isn't the teaching of the Bible, that it's not historical. It was never the, 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 the faith and practice of the church until the time of the Reformation, that it's unworkable, that it, had, it has served since the time of the Reformation as a, a veritable blueprint for theological anarchy and fragmentation, and that sola scriptura isn't even logical because it can't account for the uh, canon of scripture. Yeah. And, so and that's with what all we that, argued then. Yeah. And so uh, to bear mm -hmm. in mind uh, where that kind of questioning, once you realize sola scriptura is not scriptural, it's not historical, it's not workable, and it's not even logical. Uh, Ken, I can't tell me how many stories have come across my social media feeds over the past several weeks, especially of all these people from mm -hmm. evangelical backgrounds, sola scriptura backgrounds, who have gone through sort of like a deconstruction era in their faith, where they found that this was all exactly, as we said, unworkable, unhistorical, illogical, and now they believe in nothing, or they don't know what they believe, yeah. or they're agnostic or something else. You and I could have gone down that road, and I actually felt in that, I felt mm -hmm. that same way uh, for a period of time until I did something else, which is just think maybe there's a different way to think about Christian authority, and that's kind of what we're doing today. 
Yeah, what we're doing in this series is, if you will, kind of coming at the other side of the equation and sharing how we then came to embrace something else, you know, another possibility, that is to embrace the Catholic teaching that authority in the church resides not in Scripture alone, but in the interworking of Scripture, tradition, and the living teaching authority of the church, which Catholics refer to as the magisterium. Scripture, tradition, and magisterium. So anyway, to bring this around, I guess, to a conclusion, uh, this week and next we plan to bring this series that we've been on to a happy conclusion by summarizing where we've come these past few months um, as, as well as we can, and, and then spending a little time next week talking about the issue of infallibility. Okay, so to begin, Scripture, Tradition, and Magisterium, we're going to try and sum up what has it been, 15, 16 episodes um, in one session, so we need to be succinct. Here's how the Catholic Church describes how Scripture, Tradition, and Magisterium function together to provide us with a knowledge of the truth as revealed by God through the apostles, okay? I'm just going to read it now, and then we're going to kind of tear it down in the remainder of our episode today. Sacred Scripture is the speech of God as it was put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. Sacred tradition transmits in its entirety the Word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles, so that enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad, uh, spread it abroad by their preaching. So if scripture focuses on what is written. Tradition is focusing on the transmission of the word of God to the apostles, but more in the oral sense, what they taught them and that is preserved and passed along. Then, but the task of authentically interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church, the magisterium, whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This teaching office is not above the word of God, but serves it, teaching only what has been handed on, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, and explaining it faithfully in accord with the divine commission and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It draws from this one deposit of faith everything which it presents for belief as divinely revealed. And notice the focus, too, already, the focus on preserving and guarding and scrupulously listening to and passing on. The emphasis is not on creating theology, out of, and we're going to come back to that. It is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church, in accord with God's most wise plan, design, are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others, and that all together, and each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. And that's out of the catechism. So this is not some theology professor from some Catholic university no. and his particular thought about how this should all go together. This is literally what the Church actually teaches about the interplay of Scripture, tradition, yeah, and magisterium. I'm, yes, I'm, re I'm reading from the catechism as it is quoting mainly from Dei Verbum, the, the mm -hmm. dogmatic constitution on divine revelation from Vatican II. Here it is then. Authority in Catholicism is a stool with three legs comprised of Scripture, tradition, and and magisterium. And now let's break it down then and try to summarize. First, we have sacred scripture. Sacred scripture is the speech of God, the catechism said, the speech of God as it was put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. That's from paragraph 81. And it's important to emphasize right away, Matt, to those listening, 
that both Catholics and Protestants embrace the Old and New Testaments as being the inspired Word of God. So we don't need to go into that. In fact, Catholics have no problem, i go a little step further, Catholics have no problem agreeing that among the three legs of the stool of authority upon which we sit, Scripture holds a position of primacy. We're fine with using that word, primacy. After all, only Scripture is inspired. It's the only inspired record that we have of divine revelation. Catholics do not say that tradition is inspired. We don't use that word. We don't say that the magisterium of the church are inspired. We don't say that bishops, even the bishop of Rome, just walks around inspired, opening his mouth and speaking like, you know, like the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah or something. Only scripture, to use Paul's phrase, is God-breathed from 2 Timothy 3.16. So that's, that's what's important to lay down as a foundation. We agree with Protestants that scripture is inspired word of God, and we agree that it holds a position, I would say, ontological primacy. In terms of what it is, it holds a position of primacy. It's the only inspired record that we have. The problem, of course, is that Scripture needs to be interpreted. That's where the problem comes in. And by interpreted, Matt, I don't mean merely that the words of Scripture, the phrases, the sentences, the paragraphs need to be properly translated or need to be properly understood in their literary and historical context. I mean that I mean that decisions need to be made as to what the Bible is teaching, what the doctrinal content is of all these things gathered together. Because the New Testament just doesn't provide us with much in the way of doctrinal summaries. It it, it just doesn't. Um, If you and I want to know basically what the New Testament teaches, I'm putting it all together, if we want to know what the New Testament teaches us about God, about Jesus Christ, about the atonement, Jesus' death on the cross, about justification, about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, about sanctification, about baptism, the Eucharist, about ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. If we want to know that, well, someone, you know, someone somewhere has to search out everything that is said about the, the topic in question, under question, under, under assessment, needs to seek out everything that is said about it in the Bible. They need to bring it all together, need to interpret it all within its context, need to organize it, and need to decide this is the biblical doctrine of A, B, C, X, Y, Z, whatever it is. That's what I mean by interpretation. Yeah, a great example of this is how is someone saved? Because Peter at Pentecost says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, you also hear things like, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So someone in your household has to believe, and then you're saved. Or, uh, you know, uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Okay, are those three different things? Or are those three aspects of the same thing? You know, someone has to say how this all fits together. Right. Someone needs to gather all of the passages in the Bible. You're talking about salvation, and there are thousands. Needs to gather all the passages in the Bible that touch on the doctrine of salvation. Need to interpret each of those passages in their context accurately, translate them accurately from the Hebrew, from the Greek, from the Aramaic, and need to decide this is what this is the doctrine that the Bible teaches. This is what's being taught. Okay, and you and I know from long experience uh, uh, that. When the work of biblical interpretation is done, as I've described it, tremendous disagreements are the result. 
Um, this is why Protestantism, working from the premise of Scripture alone, sola scriptura, in only 500 years has fragmented into thousands of denominations, sects, independent congregations, independent church movements of various kinds. Uh, you know, it, it's not some nefarious intent here. It's simply, it's simply that Christians don't agree on what the New Testament is teaching. And let me pause you right there to say something that that is often thrown at me. Uh, you know, they're like, well, we have disagreements between this church and that church down the road, but, you know, I know that I can walk into a Catholic church and hear one priest say this about this passage of Scripture, and another priest say this about this passage of Scripture, and another guy, you know, there's disagreements within Catholicism about how this goes. Yes, but those guys don't get to say what the church teaches. They can only say what they think, right? What mm -hmm. the church teaches I mean, you just went to the catechism. You can find and people who disagree with that and her, who are even Catholic priests and possibly even bishops, but they don't get to say what the church teaches. They can only say what they think. Right, right, right. Big, big difference. Okay, so this is why Protestantism has fragmented, because people just don't agree. When they're looking at Scripture alone and the interpretation of Scripture and the decision as to what it's teaching, and this is also why Catholics stress the importance of sacred tradition. And we describe it as a lens through which the light of God's inspired word can be brought into focus um, as an interpretive key to the meaning of Scripture, which, which brings us, Matt, to the second leg of our stool, sacred tradition. Okay, so what is sacred tradition? Quoting again from the Catechism, the passage that we read, sacred tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. Okay, it's transmitting in its entirety the word of God. First, what sacred tradition is not, and I want to make very, very clear, it's not that along with the written record of the apostolic teaching that we find in the New Testament, it's not that along with that, the Catholic Church has, you know, secreted away in her archives transcriptions of other things the apostles taught, okay? Tradition is not a list of other doctrines, so that we have doctrines in the Bible, and then we have a list of other doctrines that come from tradition. That's not what it is. So what is it? And let me state this carefully, and we'll expand a bit. When the Church speaks of sacred tradition, what she is saying is simply that apart from what the apostles wrote, that is apart from sacred scripture, what the apostles taught the churches that they founded by their preaching, what they taught the churches by their example, what they taught the churches by the institutions they established when they were with them, can be seen, can be found in the faith and practice of the early church. That's what it's saying, that along with scripture, where the apostolic teaching is reflected, the apostolic teaching is also reflected in the doctrine, the worship, and the life of the early church. And on top of that, it, it is provided for by the instruction of sacred scripture. Sacred, sacred scripture basically allows yeah. and maintains that this is going to have to happen in order for the faith to continue. Yes, 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 yes. And that's where we're going with a couple of passages right now. But But, but just for clarity's sake, then, the doctrine of the apostles is reflected in what they wrote, and what we're saying is the doctrine of the apostles is also reflected in the churches that they established. 
that is in the doctrine of the churches, the faith and practice of those churches. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, famous passage, Paul commands the believers in Thessalonica to, and I'm I'm quoting now, to stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Now, if Paul is commanding these believers to stand firm and to hold to everything he taught them by word of mouth, as well as what he taught them in writing, well, Paul must have believed that the substance of what he taught them by word of mouth could be preserved. You follow the logic of what I'm saying? If he's commanding them to preserve it and to hold to it, he must have believed that it could be preserved and it could be held to apart from his writings. And as we mentioned when we were talking about sola scriptura, in some senses, the stuff that he passed along by word of mouth was more important uh, in a lot of the ways that these churches were set up because when you read his letter to the Corinthians, most of it is correcting the things that they heard from him but got wrong. Right? I mean, same thing with the Galatians. A lot of what is written in Galatians is not necessarily the substance of the thing. It's the correction of whatever he told them, but they got wrong. So it's those occasional letters. Yeah, and it also makes sense, I mean, just given the time frame, you know, we talked about in in that same series about how Paul spent about three years in Ephesus, and he writes one letter six pages long. You know, obviously— he taught them, well, he says it in Acts chapter 20, he says he conveyed to them the entire, the whole counsel of God over three years' time, preaching night and day with tears. That's got to be more complete than what we have in the six pages of the Ephesian letter. Okay, so, but my point here is that for Paul to command them to hold firm and stand fast in what he taught them by word of mouth, he must have believed that it could be, and we find that he did believe that it could be, that the substance of his teaching could be and would be preserved in this way. Because near the end of his life, he writes to Timothy, the successor to his ministry, and he says, follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, which you have heard from me, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me. There's that word again, heard. What you have heard from me, oral teaching, in in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Paul doesn't seem to think that the only way his teaching is going to be preserved is in his writings. Um, He doesn't even mention his writings in these words to Timothy. Instead, he focuses entirely on Timothy preserving, guarding by the Holy Spirit what he heard Paul preach in the, in the presence of others and passing that on to other men who will guard by the Holy Spirit and will pass it on as well. So th- this is a different mindset. And when we read the writings of the early church fathers, we find that their mindset is similar to Paul's. Um, here's a passage we've looked at several times in this series, St. Irenaeus, again, writing in the second century and emphasizing the value of tradition. Just notice the mindset and how it is so different than a sola scriptura kind of mindset. St. Irenaeus, as I said before, the church having received this preaching and this faith from the apostles, although she is disseminated throughout the whole world, yet she guarded it as if she occupied but one house. It is not necessary to seek among others the truth which is easily obtained from the church. For the apostles, like a rich man in a bank, deposited with her, that is the church, most copiously everything which pertains to the truth. And everyone who wishes draws from her, the church, the drink of life. What then? If there should be a dispute over some kind of question, ought we not have recourse 
to the most ancient churches in which the apostles were familiar and draw from them, the churches, what is clear and certain in regard to that question. And it, the point is simply that all along here, he doesn't say if there's a dispute, go to the Bible, although the Bible is God's inspired word, and they definitely went to the Bible in disputes. But his mindset is different. He says, if there is a dispute, go to the most ancient churches. In other words, you can find in those churches the doctrine of the apostles preserved, guarded by the Holy Spirit, and kept. Yeah, so as you were saying, and you've brought up a bunch of stuff from St. Vincent Lorenz uh, of Loren, uh, you know, over and over, who, who points this out. Um, quite well, even just a few years after the canon of the New Testament has been formally established is when he's writing that people are already trying to take this approach. Mm -hmm. And it's not a question of what is the most plausible explanation if I just walk into the scriptures and look at them, what is the most plausible explanation of what these scriptures mean? The question is, who has the authority to say what they mean? Because at the end of the day, you can make anybody say anything if you contextualize them within your own worldview, whatever you, and we'll get into this a little mm -hmm. bit with the magisterium, you can make the Bible say mm -hmm. anything you want. You can make Jesus say anything you want. If you don't believe me, look around. Every political party has a way mm -hmm. to invoke Jesus to justify whatever it is that they're doing. It's a very simple example. But yeah, the question you, is, you refer who to, has the authority? Yeah, yeah. And St. Vincent of Lorraine, I mean, he goes on talking about how that the heretics at the time, that every single thing they taught, they they uh, embellished with passages from all over the Bible, plausible interpretations of the Old Testament and the New. In fact, I think he says that everything they write, you know, veritably, veritably bristles with quotations from Scripture. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, so finally, um, in paragraph 78 on this, the Catechism makes a clear statement of what the Church has in mind when it speaks of sacred tradition. So, right here, we're defining sacred tradition, and this is what it says. This living transmission accomplished in the Holy Spirit is called tradition. You see, it's, it's a living transmission rather than the transmission that is written down in the pages of the New Testament. It's accomplished in the Holy Spirit. It's called tradition since it is distinct from sacred scripture, though closely connected to it. Through tradition, the church in her doctrine, her life, her worship, perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is, all that she believes, so you have the doctrine of the apostles reflected in what they wrote. And now what we're saying is you have the doctrine of the apostles reflected in the churches they founded, in the doctrine, the life, the worship of the churches. Okay, this is what sacred tradition is. But why would we describe sacred tradition as being a lens through which the light of Scripture can be brought into focus? Why would we describe tradition as functioning as an interpretive key to the meaning of Scripture. Well, to dig into this, Matt, let me give an illustration that I use to explain, on the one hand, how tradition helps us to understand the meaning of Scripture, and on the other hand, how an insistence on Scripture alone can actually distort the teaching of the apostles, can actually lead us away from the teaching of the apostles. Okay, and get ready because you're in the illustration. Okay, uh, imagine, Matt, that you are the pastor of our church. That's terrifying. Imagine that you're... <laughs> well, it's not entirely terrifying, but anyway, just imagine it, okay? Yeah, you know, they say some analogies limp. This one limps badly then, right? Okay, but right out of the gate. But anyway, imagine you're the pastor of our church, highly respected, beloved pastor, and over the course of 20 years, you preach, you teach continually everything that you believe, you preach to us. 
But of course, the recording machine was broken, and none of your sermons, none of your lessons have ever been recorded. But you taught us for 20 years. During that same time, you wrote letters, occasional letters, uh, to people in the congregation who had problems of one kind or another. You would write letters, and you'd go back and forth to answer their questions and to help them. And imagine that you die. Okay, you're dead. Okay, and then some years go by. This is still my illustration, all right? Some years go by, someone new comes into the church. Let's say it's me. I come into the church five years after you died. And um, all your letters have been collected into a book because you were so revered. Well, I pick up your book and I begin to read, or the book of your letters, and I begin to read the letters. And one Sunday morning in the adult Sunday school class, I say, you know, I don't think that Pastor Matt believed in the Trinity. Now, everyone in the class who knew you and lived with you, they're, they're aghast. And they, they respond, what are you talking about? And I say, well, I'm reading these letters here. And, you know, he says some things that look like he might have believed in the Trinity, but he also says some other things that kind of look like maybe he didn't. The people in the church say, no, 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 no. Come on. Pastor Matt preached entire series of sermons on the Trinity. He, he taught us on Sunday morning, you know, a lecture series that went on for a year on the Trinity. We know what he believed. He believed in the Trinity. To which I respond, well, you know, Pastor Matt is gone though now, and all of that is just tradition. That's just oral tradition. It really can't be trusted. The only thing we can know for sure is what Pastor Matt wrote in these letters. And in these letters, I just think it's ambiguous. Now, for instance, he says that Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour of his return. You know, it says that Jesus grew in grace and knowledge. How could God grow in grace and knowledge? So I think that the safest position for us to take is to say, that Pastor Matt probably didn't believe in the Trinity. Okay, okay. You see, you see what that illustration brings out. What it plays out is it, exactly the, what you're saying. You know, before that, if you really want to know what Pastor Matt believes, whoever that guy is, the best thing to do is find the people who knew Pastor Matt. I mean, and then those people who share the stories of what Pastor Matt was really like. You know, if, if the people who knew Pastor Matt are dead, why don't you go find the people that knew Pastor Matt, the people that they talked to? That's right. right? That's right. It just makes sense. That's right. Because in, past, because in Pastor Matt's letters that he was writing to answer specific questions, he may have never had occasion to summarize his doctrine of the Trinity. That is you. You may have never had occasion to summarize it and state it in so many words. And so in that sense... Um, what the church knew of your teaching functioned as a lens through which what you wrote could be brought into focus. And maybe you, um, uh, what what they knew. I, I was just going to say, maybe you know, not everybody's had this experience, but you know, some people have, where they have a mm -hmm. beloved grandfather, um, you know, perhaps, and he shared little pieces of wisdom with them through the years, you know, walking you know, down trails or while fishing or riding in cars or hanging out, you know, mm -hmm. at the at the cabin, you know, all these nuggets of wisdom that everybody's like, well, so-and-so always used to say this. And somebody has probably thought to themselves, you know what, we should get some of the wisdom, some of the really important things that this grandfather yeah. wanted to pass on his family. We should just put all those in a book just so we save them. And some people have done that, but most people haven't. But that, that wisdom still gets passed down. There are people I know who've been dead a generation before I was born who people yeah. still say to me, well, so-and-so always used to say this. And that's just a relative. That's not an apostle. 
But yeah, my problem, you know? my my grandkids have wanted to write down all the wise sayings that I've that they've heard me say, but the problem is it's only like it's less than a page long, and they just ran out of, they couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> but anyway, I think that that illustration brings out the issue that is the way in which tradition can function as a lens through which what is written is brought into focus, the way in which it can function as an interpretive key to what the apostles wrote. And on the other hand, it brings out the idea that if you stick with Scripture alone and you insist we're only going to hold what we can see in the pages, you might find yourself being led away from the full doctrine of the apostles. Because you might find yourself thinking, well, this is ambiguous, I'm not really sure. In his classic early Christian doctrines, the great early church historian J.N.D. Kelly put it like this, something I would never have understood before, but I, I, I do understand now. This is what he said, Scripture and the church's unwritten tradition were identical in content, both being vehicles of the revelation. If tradition is a more trustworthy guide, this is not because it comprises truths other than those revealed in Scripture, but because the true tenor of the apostolic message is there unambiguously set out. You know, in other words, there may be passages in the New Testament that seem to make the, the idea of, of the Trinity ambiguous. That's why you could have the Arians. That's why you could have the Jehovah's Witnesses. But the early church could state flat out, no, the Trinity is what we believe. The Trinity is what we believe. Okay, so in, in short, this is why we say that tradition serves as a lens through which Scripture is brought into focus. This is why approaching the question of what Christianity teaches by focusing intently upon Scripture alone without much regard for the, for the faith and practice of the early church can actually distort the teaching of the apostles and can actually keep you from the teaching of the apostles. And if it's okay with you, Matt, um, I have another little illustration I want to give because I remember it so vividly how this lesson came home to me in my own thinking um, as I was beginning to study the Catholic faith. Um, when I was in seminary, I was a Baptist theologically. That is, I believed that you only baptize, I believed in believer's baptism. You, you baptize those who have come to personal faith in Christ and baptism is just symbolic. But my wife and I were attending a Presbyterian church for a while. Presbyterians also hold that baptism is symbolic, but they practice infant baptism, not just believer's baptism. Well, the pastor of this Presbyterian church really wanted me to come on board with him and become an elder in the Presbyterian church. And so I had this period of time in which I studied afresh everything I could find in the New Testament on the doctrine of baptism. And I read several good books from the Baptist perspective, several from the Presbyterian perspective. And I was almost embarrassed at the time because I, I definitely held the Sola Scriptura. I was kind of embarrassed to realize that when I came away from that study, I just wasn't absolutely sure. I felt like there were passages in the New Testament that sort of weighted things in the direction of the Baptist, pa passages that weighted things in the other direction. And I, I didn't feel like an exe exegetical proof could be offered for one position or the other. Well, so I went on my way as a Baptist because, you know, inertia, that's what I was comfortable with. Many, many years later then, when I began to study the Catholic faith, many years later, I began to read the early church fathers, and I began to read some of the early church historians, and I find them quoting extensively from the early church, and I find them stating categorically that the early church believed in a 
held to a sacramental view of baptism. That is, they held to the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Okay, now get this. Baptismal regeneration wasn't even on my radar screen back in seminary when I was dealing with, are the Baptists right or are the Presbyterians right? It wasn't even on the radar screen. Okay, but here is what J.N.D. Kelly says, again, in his early Christian doctrines, summarizing the doctrine of baptism in the early church. From the beginning, baptism was the universally accepted rite of admission into the church. As regards its significance, it was always held to convey the remission of sins. It was always. It is that washing with living water which alone can cleanse penitence, and which, being a baptism with the Holy Spirit, is to be contrasted with Jewish washings. It is a spiritual rite replacing circumcision, the unique doorway to the remission of sins. And just one more, here's Yale historian, very famous Yaroslav Pelikan, in his book, The Emergence of the Catholic Tradition, where he summarized by saying that in the thinking of the early church, four basic gifts are given, are given in baptism. Sacramental view, here they are, the remission of sins, deliverance from death, regeneration, and the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. So, Matt, so, so here I am, many years after, my, after this experience in seminary, and I'm beginning to read the early fathers, and I'm reading these historians, and my mind is just getting like, just jangled up, because I'm realizing the early church believed in baptismal regeneration, which is a view that I didn't even have on the radar screen when I was doing my big study on baptism. Well, I immediately wanted to go back to the New Testament and read the whole thing again in the light, in the light of what I'd seen in the early fathers, or if you will, through the lens of the doctrine of the early church. And well, to make a long story short, when I did, I saw baptismal regeneration just sort of popping up everywhere, you know, in, in Peter's sermon on Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Ananias saying to Paul, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. I saw it everywhere. And, and so I present this as simply one example of how in my life I began to see that tradition could serve. It really could serve as a lens through which the various statements of the New Testament could be brought into focus and, and, and concretized as a doctrine. You follow what and I'm saying the, here? I, I do follow what you're saying. And on the flip side of that, uh, I believed in sacred tradition. I just would have never called it that, and I would have thought that I believed the opposite. But in fact, I did believe in some hmm. tradition, the tradition of my particular denominations that I was in, which all held through Nazarene to Free Methodist. Uh, you know, I, I don't remember. There may be some variations in the particular take on it, but the tra tradition was is that when you wanted to make a public <laughs> statement to the congregation— that you were going to be taking your faith more seriously as an adult. We would have a baptism service so that you could make a public display for the rest of the congregation that now you considered yourself to be really taking all of this extremely seriously. Where is that in the mm -hmm. Bible? Where is that take on baptism found? In the it's, it's nowhere. There is nowhere in the scriptures where it says, and then when the believers who had already confessed with Jesus that Jesus was Lord decided that they wanted to make a public statement, they became baptized. That's nowhere. It's nowhere. As a matter of fact, the testimony of scripture is that baptism is thought of very differently. It was our tradition, our particular tradition, that looked at baptism in that way, not the scriptures. Yeah, I'm trying to quit. 
I'm trying to think through the New Testament to see if there's anything, <laughs> and you're right. No, nowhere in the New Testament is baptism presented as a. Um, this is a way that you can tell the congregation that you're serious, that you're a believer. Nowhere. Yeah. Nowhere. Okay. So scripture and tradition. Then we, we've tried to summarize what we've been doing in this series on those. This is how scripture and tradition relate to one another. Then. Okay. Where does the magisterium? Where does the third leg of this come into picture? Um, come into the picture. And and so to set this off, quoting again from the passage that we started with today from the Catechism, but the task of authentically or authoritatively interpreting the Word of God, whether written or handed on, so handed on here means tradition, whether written or oral tradition, the doctrine of the church, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church, whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This teaching office is not above the Word of God, but serves it, teaching only what has been handed on, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, and explaining it faithfully in accord with the divine commission and with the help of the Holy Spirit. Okay, in other words, according to the Catholic teaching, I put it in the, in the negative, it isn't up to each Christian individually to decide what the Bible is teaching on each and every doctrine. Rather, it is the living teaching office of the church, the magisterium, the bishops in union with the Bishop of Rome, all the bishops in union with the Bishop of Rome. This is, to complete that analogy, that metaphor, this is the eye that has been ordained by God to look through the lens of sacred tradition at the inspired light of sacred scripture and make the final call, if you will, make the final call when a final call is needed, if a final call is needed with regard to doctrine and morals. This is the teaching. And for me, Matt, I can just say the more that I thought about this, the more, not just biblical it seemed, but the more sense that it made. I mean, after all, I mean, as firmly and as faithfully as the church would attempt to hold on to all the apostles had taught in their writing and orally, disputes are going to arise. I mean, over time, there are going to be heretical teachers there are going to be heretical movements, and I was shocked to realize that when you actually list them, there are a great number in the early centuries of the church. So heresies are going to arise, and in that situation, in order for the church to remain one church, in order for it to be one and not just fragment and fracture and become a lot of churches, and in order for Christians to have certainty, that is, individual believers, to have certainty as to what they believe, uh, what they are to believe is true— the church needs for, for someone to do the things described in this passage of the catechism. I mean, the church would need someone, I mean, even if it was just you, if it was Matt Swaim alone, the church needs someone who can serve the word of God, teaching only what has been handed on to it, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, explaining it faithfully by the commission of God and with the help of the spirit. The church is going to need someone to do that. Well, boy, Does am I glad make, that... Yeah, go ahead. I was about to say, I'm glad we don't have a sola suema tradition, because that would be very, very, very bad. <laughs> but we have yeah, to, you, it, you have to have that person. You have to have that person who says, when Jesus says that they will pick up serpents and yeah. not be harmed, he means that occasionally there'll be people throughout history who are bitten by snakes and survive. 
that's not a universal application for you to get out the basket at the end of your singing on Sunday and pass out snakes. Somebody has to say, that's what that means. Yeah, someone has to say, putting this all together, the Trinity is true. Someone has to say, all things considered, the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the body. You know, someone has to say this. In fact, turning it around again or putting it as a question that came to me, does it even make sense? I mean, does it even make basic sense to think that each Christian should do this for him or herself, should do this preserving and guarding and interpreting and passing on, or that each pastor should do it for his congregation, or that each bishop should do it for his diocese? I mean, does it even make sense to think this? When you think of it, does it not make more sense? Does it not make more sense to think that when disputes needed to be resolved in the church, when the teaching of the church needed to be formally defined, that the church would look to, does it not make more sense, okay, just basic common sense to think that the church would look to all the bishops in the world gathered in ecumenical council with the bishop that sits upon the chair of Peter, that it would be their job to examine sacred scripture, their job to examine sacred tradition, to pray for the leading of the spirit and make the decision for the people of God just like the apostles and elders did in Acts chapter 15 when they met at the council of Jerusalem and they wrote, you know, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Does it not make sense? I mean, it doesn't, after all, this is how the church functioned in the early centuries. I mean, this is how the church answered the Arian crisis. They didn't say, you know, every one of you priests out there and every one of you bishops study the Bible and decide for yourself. And we'll respect your decision. Every one of you has the right and the duty to do this. They didn't say that. I mean, this is how the church settled the disputes regarding the Holy Spirit at the Council of, of Nicaea in Constantinople in 371. This is how we got the Bible. This is how we got the Bible. You know, yeah. that same thing. That's how this, the disputes regarding the canon of Scripture were settled at Rome, Hippo, and Carthage in 382, 393. This is how the Trinity was settled. This is how. It wasn't, just repeat, it wasn't by each believer sitting in their home, studying the issues, and deciding. There was no right and duty. I mean, as I, as I used to say to my congregation, it's your right, it's your duty to go home and study and decide for yourself. Don't listen to me. I'm just a fallible interpreter, language of that sort, which is very, very common in evangelical churches. There was no right and duty in the early church for each Christian to study, pray, and decide. It was the living teaching office of the church. However you want to minutely define it, okay, because I'll, I'll leave that open for now. However you want to minutely define it, it certainly wasn't each person. And I, I remember how it kind of struck me when, you know, I believed that I had the right and duty to study and decide. And I did that every week. I studied and decided and I preached to my congregation. And yet if someone said, don't you think don't you think you should accept the authority of all the bishops in the Catholic world meeting and deciding? It's like, no. All the bishops in the world can't trust that. Ken Hensley, you can certainly trust. Does not make sense. That does not make sense, Ken. But uh, nor does it make sense that you can go a half a block down to from the, you know, yeah. Southern Baptist Church to the United Church of Christ and, you know, two doors down to the Disciples of Christ are two doors down to the Church of the Nazarene or the yeah. Presbyterians and hear anybody in any of those buildings say, you can't trust anybody else in this town. You can trust me. 
or for any yeah. of those people to say, go and don't trust any of us, go make your, up your mind for yourself. Well, don't trust you, though. Why am I putting anything in the offering plate? <laughs> right? I mean, this it's 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 an insane, insane proposition. Yeah, it's it's kind of a yeah yeah it's it's a mess. Okay, we need to wrap we need to begin to wrap this up. Okay, there's much more that could be said. Okay, more that we could say about scripture. More to say about tradition. More to say about the magisterium. And next week we're going to touch on a little bit more with regard to the issue of infallibility as it's applied to the church, the bishops, the bishop of Rome. But here's how the catechism sums it up. That it sums up the teaching on the interworking of scripture, tradition, and magisterium. It is clear, therefore, that in the supremely wise arrangement of God, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the church are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the others, working together each in its own way under the action of the Holy Spirit, the one Holy Spirit, they all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. And I want to close by kind of telling you the steps by where this happened in my life, because I, I think of how I became Catholic, beginning with scripture, and then eventually coming to grant more authority to tradition, and then finally coming to accept the authority of the magisterium. It was scripture, tradition, and magisterium. Okay, as a, as a Protestant, when I was a Baptist pastor, it was definitely the Bible, nothing more, nothing less and nothing else, all that is necessary for faith and practice. I, I gave very little weight to tradition, history, church history, the doctrine of the early church, and I gave virtually no weight to the idea of their existing and authoritative magisterium, okay? But then at a certain point in my studies, the, the baptism issue, reading the early church fathers, reading J. N. D. Kelly, Yaroslav Pelikan, these things, I was coming to see, as I was coming to see how tradition can function as a lens uh, to bring into focus the, the, the teaching of Scripture, that it can really can function as an interpretive key to the meaning of Scripture. Well, although I still thought of the Catholic Church as one denomination among many, now I, I kind of came to this place, Matt, where I was saying, where I was comparing all the various denominations teaching based now not on Scripture alone, but based on how well I thought they fit with Scripture and early church history, scripture and tradition, all right? Okay, the final move, of course, then is when I came to believe that even sola scriptura and history, or sola scriptura and sola, I mean, that even scripture and tradition was not really enough, because it was still me deciding what is scripture, me deciding what is tradition, and I came to see the final move would be that there had to be an authoritative teaching office. And, and I, what I mean by that is this. I came to see that in order for the church to be one church, in order for the church to remain one church over time, an authoritative teaching office was necessary and that it, it had always, always been necessary. And so at, at this point, which is sort of the final leg the, of the three legs, it was no longer a matter of me comparing the various denominations and considering Catholicism is one of the denominations I was comparing on the basis of their fidelity to Scripture, in my mind, or their fidelity to history, in my mind, it was me coming to the recognition that ultimately it wasn't for me to decide at all. It was for me to accept the authority of the Church that had decided the canon of Scripture, that had decided the Trinity, that had decided the two natures of Christ in one person, that had decided 
the Holy Spirit that had decided the papacy, that it was for me to, uh, if you will, it was for me just to scoot into my pew next to St. Ignatius, St. Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus, Ambrose, Augustine, and uh, sit down and become a learner. And that's how Scripture, tradition, and magisterium came together for me. Well, you make it sound so reasonable. I felt a lot dumber than you did, I think, you know, as I was going through this. <laughs> uh, but again, you know, I mentioned the deconstructionist stuff, you know, where you're breaking down this whole notion of sola scriptura, and you can either say, well, maybe none of it means anything, or maybe there's another way to think about it. And just to give you a collapse eight years into about 35 seconds, a big part of my journey was I had a pastor that I trusted who got involved in a scandal. And that's when I had to rethink everything mm -hmm. about what I believed about Christianity. And I realized that even to have a notion of sola scriptura, this is eight years worth of thinking, you still have to have scripture, tradition, and a magisterium to help you believe in sola scriptura because you have to be able to look to the Bible to tell you that it's the word of God. But the real reason that you believe that it's the word of God, because there's not enough in the Bible to spell it out clearly, is because your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and all of them knew it was the Word of God. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the real reason I believed in God is because my pastor was standing up every Sunday and saying, this is the Word of God. So I was having Scripture and tradition and a magisterium all telling me that Sola Scriptura was the way to be. Yeah. And that was a really kind of sickening realization <laughs> uh, because I did believe in all those three things. I just didn't believe them in the way that was workable, historical, logical, or any of it. Um, and that's mm -hmm, why mm -hmm. I, I knew that's why I was so frustrated because this wasn't the way for these three things to be working together properly. So does that make sense to you? I mean, yes, I it does. Yes, it does. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll zip it up now because we've gone long today and let, let you have the final word. Okay, well, I don't have any final word. That was my final word, Ken. Go ahead. Say say some final word. Let's hear a final word. Okay, my final word is... No? Come... Okay, no, that's okay. That, that's not a very good final word. Maybe, maybe good. I should give it. No, you go ahead. <laughs> I'll just say. Come go visit ahead. us at chnetwork.org. That's my final word. And community.chnetwork.org. And we're almost done, but not yet. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.